Welcome everyone to the Radical Reverend Show and this is our wrap-up show for the year. We're going to be talking about all things 20 and 21. Thank goodness 2020 is almost over. And it is uh, our left leftist, uh, left left or leftist panel, but today it's actually the leftist 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 panel uh, because uh, we have uh, Alex Grant, who you all know, um, editor of Fight Back and identifies as a Trotskyist. And today we also are welcoming Drew Garvey, who's the Ontario Provincial Communist Party leader. And we have Ben Nolan, who's a doctoral of, uh, doctor of political theory student from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a Du Bois uh, fellow there, um, who uh, he says somewhat jokingly, he's leaning towards Maoism. So we got the left covered on this show. I'll, I'll be your token anarchist, you know, if we need that voice again in the mix. Um, but we're going to first of all talk about um, about what all that means and then we're going to go into talking about what the big issues uh, were in 2020 when you're looking at the world through socialist eyes and, uh, and, and what's the way forward really in 2021? What are we all supposed to do? Um, we'd love to hear from you out there in radio land and of course also in podcast land. We're podcast and on the radio station at CIT 89.5 FM. So do send your comments, uh, questions, anything always answered. And of course, if you haven't donated to the station, please do so. Uh, just a donate button on the website. Um, and lovely to keep hearing from you now and into 2021. So uh, let's start with you, Drew. Uh, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. And uh, so why did you become a communist? What went into that decision? Um, well, I guess personal, everybody's got their own personal uh, history, I guess. And, and mine uh, was combined with what was going on around me at the time. You know, I was a kid in the 90s when my teachers were fighting against the Mike Harris government. Um, and my parents, too, were different parts of the healthcare sector. So I heard a lot of anti-conservative, uh, you know, and very that government was very similar to the government that we have now in Ontario. Um, people fighting back, you know, a, a labor movement that was really mobilized. And then I saw the Iraq war uh, when I was in kind of high school uh, and just witnessing the the uh, propaganda coming out of CNN and the different media outlets, just the, the drumbeat towards war that ended up costing over a million lives. and Obviously, there's still an ongoing war on terror that's happening. Um, I was looking for kind of, you know, what are, what are the roots of these kind of things that I see around me? And that's where I found, you know, a, a real critique of capitalism. And then soon after that, it, you know, you're trying to look for, well, if not capitalism, then what? And you you um, go towards a lot of people are, are increasing numbers of people are looking towards socialism. And then the question is, how do we get to socialism? So then you have different paths to get to socialism. And that's where I think you get to um you know, different isms uh, uh, under the big umbrella of Marxism or communism. So for me, I ended up joining the Communist Party about 15 years ago. Um, and uh, the, you know, the main thing was that I saw a lot of members involved in the labor movement or involved in different struggles. Um, and it wasn't just about, uh, you know, an academic approach. It was about, you know, getting in there and getting your hands dirty and organizing your community and then linking it up to the broader long-term struggle for socialism, which you know, it's uh, might seem a long way off in Canada right now, but maybe less of a long way off than it did uh, last year because of all the you know how fast the world is changing. 
Thank you. Uh, Alex, um, Alex Grant from Fight Back. Um, so why are you, I suppose I should ask you, why are you not a member of the Communist Party? Why are you a Trotskyist? Well you, well, you know, most people don't care about these labels. When people ask me what I am, I'm a Marxist. That's uh, how I uh, self-identify. Uh, but if, you know, if they push a bit further, yes, I follow the tradition of uh, Leon Trotsky. Uh, how, did I, how did I become a Marxist? Well, when I was a teenager, I just saw capitalism being so damn unfair. All of this wasted human talent and potential. Uh, actually, there's a great uh, quote, you know, how many uh, Einsteins uh, and uh, are herding swine and how many swine herders are sitting on thrones? Right. That's uh, and, and that's what politicized me. I also got politicized by the environmental movement. And then I asked my mum to take me to a meeting because I was lucky enough to grow up in a communist family. And uh, but I identified with the Trotskyist tradition because workers democracy is absolutely vital for socialism, that socialism needs democracy in the same way as the human body needs oxygen that not just political democracy, but economic democracy, workers control and workers planning of production. Like in capitalism, there's an utter dictatorship in the uh, economy that uh, the boss is a dictator, you know, has complete control. No, we must have workers democracy from the bottom up combined with Marxist revolutionary organization. So that, that's what drives my politics. And Ben, um, again, Du Bois, talk to a little bit about uh, Du Bois, because uh, most people probably don't know who he is or what happened there. And, and also um, your comments about, you know, this, this kind of leaning towards Maoism from African-American uh, politics. Uh, sure, I can speak to Du Bois. Uh, du Bois kind of came onto the scene as the first African-American graduate uh, from a graduate program at Harvard University. Uh, at that stage in his life, he was uh, he was flirting with socialism, uh, but he was definitely like of the sort of New England uh, sort of respectable scene, and uh, saw throughout the course of his life a, a, a sort of slow but steady radicalization, which is maybe something that I've kind of identified with as someone that uh, you know came onto this came on came into adulthood in a moment in Canadian history where. At least to me, it didn't seem like there were very many radical alternatives available uh, in the 1990s and have found that my maturation process has been one of uh, radicalization. Uh, he's known especially for his uh, groundbreaking uh, revisionist history of the American Civil War and Reconstruction and his conceptualization of what decisively won the Civil War as a de facto general strike by the uh, soon to be former slaves of the South. It's difficult to imagine a more influential figure in the sort of emergence and consolidation of black radical politics. He represented NAACP at the United Nations conference and was extraordinarily critical of the uh, disjuncture between the highfalutin language of human rights that were discussed being spouted by people like Churchill and Yan Smuts, uh, white supremacists, uh, colonialists, etc. He ended up being persecuted by HUAC in the McCarthy era for his participation in the peace and disarmament movements, and then wound up emigrating to Ghana, 
at the invitation of his dear friend, uh, Nkrumah. Um, he's, he's really a, just a fantastic and fascinating figure. And he, I think, joined the Communist Party USA in his 70s. <laughs> so very late in life. So where does Mal come into this? Du Bois was uh, a tremendously internationalist and conceptualized the sort of struggle of the 20th century as being defined by the color line. And so he was extraordinarily interested in any sort of emancipatory politics emerging from outside of the white world. He probably supported Imperial Japan a bit longer than is particularly respectable. But, uh, you know, by the time the People's Revolution in China happened, he'd come firmly on board was dear friends with Mao, visited China, I think, in the early 50s. There's, there's a really beautiful photo of him and Mao laughing at something together and uh, saw what was happening in China as a model, especially for a future revolution in Africa. And he was a real sort of popularizer of Maoist interpretations of Marxism among African-Americans. And this became very important, especially to the Black Panthers, et cetera. Thank you. I'm going to jump in here now because I can already see the emails and people uh, on Twitter and and podcasts coming at at me with this question. (laughs) So I might as well preempt it. Um, So when we're talking about like, so I'll get to Trotsky in a moment, but we're talking Drew and and Ben about about Mao and Stalin, there would be a significant portion of folk who are going to tell me these are two of the greatest mass murderers of all time in terms of the gulag um, and in terms of just bodies. Um, uh, so how do you, like, what do you say to that, Drew? Well, I mean, I, I don't tend to, um, that's certainly what we, what we learn in school and in the media. Um, and you know, there's a, a way to get into the history in an obje- objective way and get down and dirty about what decisions were made that led to crimes, um, that were avoidable and, and what are, were kind of historical inevitabilities with the way history was moving. But I think in, in terms of Canada and the U S being such anti-communist countries, um, it's very difficult to have that discussion in an objective way, uh, maybe outside of a, um, you know, well, I don't know, even in history departments, it's difficult to have that discussion. Um, but I, I would say to people, well, we need to have a pretty, um, you know, we need to have a Marxist look at history in terms of um, how did capitalism develop? It developed through the genocide of indigenous people here in North America and South America. It developed through uh, the slave trade. It developed through um, industrialization programs that, you know, went on for centuries and had child labor. So the development of first the first socialist countries in the world, uh, yes, there were crimes, but looking at it as, a, as like, you know, the fault of one leader that's had bad policies or the fault of one bad guy is just historical simplicity. So what would it be the fault of then? Well, in terms of uh, uh, the Soviet Union is probably what I, I know a little better than China. Uh, but um, uh, for example, it was the Soviet Union right out of the gate was invaded in the in the nineteen teens, still um, right after the revolution, by a whole number of imperialist countries, including Canada. Um, and then it faced, of course, the the Nazi invasion, where millions of Soviet people died. Um, and then, of course, the Reconstruction, and then the Cold War, and the overspending on military. Like you know, the it wasn't like a the Tsarist Russia was a, an emerging democracy, was a democracy, and then. The Bolsheviks took over, and then uh, all everything went wrong. It's these are countries that live in historic period, have their own inherit their own baggage, uh, have to deal with the material reality around them, and then they're under all this kind of pressure. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's 
of course, of course, the Soviet Union was not a, was was not a utopia, but it did achieve a, a higher living standard for the vast majority of people. So, Alex, um, why aren't you know, again, we'll go back to why aren't you a member of the Communist Party? But um, uh, and, and certainly, you know, some charges have been leveled against Trotsky, um, the Kronstadt rebellion put down, etc. Um, but but what's the difference? Well, I'm not sure the Communist Party would have me, but uh, that's another question. Uh, but uh, the 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 fact is there was 21 armies of foreign intervention, including Canada, in the immediate period after the revolution. The world imperialism tried to drown the, uh, the Russian revolution in, in its cradle. And the amazing thing was that the workers and peasants of the Soviet Union managed to organize the Red Army, uh, led by Leon Trotsky, to push to defeat that those imperialist armies. Now, but unfortunately, what happened after that is that the workers had spent, you know, they, there was the World War of one, uh, I guess, four years of fighting, and then like four or five years of civil war after that. People had spent so much time fighting and dying that after that, the working class, the people who actually put through the revolution were just either dead tired or dead. And in that situation, a bureaucracy usurped power in uh, the Soviet Union. And, and, and I'm not, uh, this is not uh, one man, it's not Stalin. It is a whole layer of bureaucrats. You have to take a Marxist sociological approach, a generalized approach on this. And they were the only people who knew how to read and write and run things. So the worker state had to rely upon these people to get stuff done, which was fine in the early period when there was the workers around to control these bureaucrats. But come the sort of early, mid, late 20s, the bureaucrats started telling the workers what to do rather than the workers telling what the bureaucrats what to do. And that's where workers' democracy was eradicated in the Soviet Union. Uh, and, 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 and that was a crime and that was not necessary. That was not necessary. And, uh, and that's why I base myself, base myself on workers' democracy, even though uh, I agree with Drew, the Soviet Union did amazing things. The Soviet Union took a backward country uh, on similar status as Pakistan to being the second world superpower, defeated Nazi Germany in the Second World War, all on the basis of the planned economy, but not due to the basis of the bureaucracy and top-down control, but basis of uh, socialist planning and the sacrifice of the Russian workers. So it shows the potential of a socialist planned economy, but it needs to be united with democracy and the lack of democracy, which was the in, in eventual downfall of the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s, that uh, once you got the economy got too complex, it could not be bureaucratically planned and you needed that workers' democratic control from the bottom up in order to have such an advanced economy. And Ben, if you're a Marxist and a socialist, you kind of have to deal with the Soviet Union. I mean, you have to deal with the workers' revolution there in some way, shape, or form. Where do you sit in all of that? Well, why don't I speak to, to China and Mao, since I feel like sure. that hasn't been represented yet. I mean, usually what people are talking about when they call Mao the, you know, one of history's greatest monsters is some combination of the famine associated with the Great Leap Forward and uh, the massacres associated with the Cultural Revolution. 
you know, and, and I'll say that a lot of the sort of, once you get into the nitty gritty of especially the death estimates around the Great Leap Forward, it's extraordinarily politicized and difficult to sort of figure out exactly what was going on there. But what is absolutely true is that China had been caught in a sort of cyclical feast and famine thing since basically the emergence of Europe as a colonial hub had debased the economy at, at the beginning of the 19th century. You know, and after the Great Leap Forward, there was never a famine, a similar famine subsequently. It's also the case that within one generation after the revolution, life expectancy increased by 30 years. The world's greatest expansion of literacy in history happened in that period as well. And I, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at, there's a terrific book that came out earlier this year by Vincent Bevins called The Jakarta Method, which kind of documents especially how the orchestrated murder of communists and Chinese minority citizens in Indonesia attacking and seeking to overturn Sukarno's regime became a model for American foreign policy interventions, especially in Latin America. But one thing that he talks about in that book that's very interesting is how the lesson that was taken by the genocide in Indonesia in the mid-1950s by China was that there are internal elements within the society that are probably actively working with the American state and will kill millions of people, you know, like it's nothing. And so he suggests that in large part, the Cultural Revolution was a reaction to that. Again, this isn't to say that any of these things were perfect and that there weren't massive mistakes. It's really difficult to sort of uh, figure out exactly what's going on underneath, you know, all of the propaganda coming from all sides regarding these issues. But I, I don't think that things are nearly as black and white as they're made out to be, especially in the, you know, Anglo-American sphere. And, you know, the reason I was joking with Jake about identifying with Mao was because uh, saying anything nice about Mao is, is a, a massive third rail in the fairly reactionary field of political science. And so I ended up in no shortage of fights over the last year. Okay. Thanks, Ben. So Jake, by the way, is the producer of the show. So shout out to Jake for producing the show. And by the way, you're listening to The Radical Reverend. And uh, this is our normally our left, left or leftist show. Today, it's leftist, leftist, leftist. As we have, it almost sounds like the opening to a joke, but we have a Communist Party member, a Trotskyist and a Maoist walk into a bar or something. Uh, anyway, they're walking into this show today. And uh, we're going to be talking from a socialist perspective about, uh, you know, 2020 and then moving forward into 2021. So uh, we've got Drew Garvey with us, uh, who's the head of the Communist Party here in Ontario. We've got Alex Grant, the editor of Fight Back and Atroskis. We've got Ben Nolan, who's a doctoral student at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and is a Du Bois specialist. So let's look at the year that almost was. Um, we're not quite at New Year's yet, uh, but um, most people, in fact, uh, probably most of the world, is pretty happy to see that that year come to an end. It wasn't a great year for a whole lot of reasons. Um, of course, COVID, um, COVID kind of jumps out at one, uh, and we're still very much in the throes of that. So maybe we'll start off with that uh, as as the issue um, from a socialist pers pers perspective. What? What should have happened, could have happened, what is happening? Um, I'll go back to you, Drew. What should have, could have, and what is? Oh, geez, it's really hard to know <laughs> where to start with this year. Um, I mean, what is happening, I think, uh, as we head into the new year, it's more of what we've seen in 2020, unfortunately. Um, and I don't think, I don't think 
2020 or the spirit of 2020 is just going to end um, on midnight uh, this week, unfortunately. Um, but I think what we've seen is um, certainly in some ways the fragility of um, our systems, our political and economic system here in Canada, um, in terms of being able to deal with the economic and health crisis, but also the incredible kind of, um, well, resilience is a bit of a buzzword these these days, but the adaptability and the the the, the um, courage of a lot of essential workers and uh, people being able to step up and resist this year too. I mean, it hasn't all been depressing. Um, so for just, for example, in terms of the health and economic thing, I think this is important that, um, you know, that it's not just an act of God that we're dealing with here with the pandemic. Um, the fact is that there are countries on this planet that have been able to, uh, to stop this virus. It became very clear early on that, that our government and other, other, um, capitalist governments, the goal wasn't to, to eradicate the virus. The goal was to keep the healthcare for system from totally collapsing. Um, that means people dying at home, basically, uh, to stop that, because that would be politically a problem, um, as well as economically, everything would kind of grind to a halt. Um, but And then to wait for a vaccine, essentially that the pharmaceutical industry would, would save us a year or so down the road. And that's the, that's the, that's the track that we're on now, I think. Uh, but if we look at other countries, uh, socialist countries, you know, if you look at China or, uh, or Vietnam, just the the per capita deaths are. Uh, I think I think uh, Vietnam still has. Oh, well, I, I checked in November and I have it here. It's 0.4 deaths per million in Vietnam uh, versus Canada at the same time was 279 per million. And of course, China, where the place where where which was the the country where the the virus was first detected, uh, managed to largely eradicate uh, the disease. But here, um, and we're heading back into a lockdown right now. It seems like um, you know we've just been content with keeping things on a on a simmer, and of course the simmer has spiked up this this winter and really really hurt us. And I think the reason for that is that um, we wanted to keep businesses open as long as possible. There was co this kind of resistance to to all, every step of uh, health measures. We were not uh, you know the countries that have done well in terms of lockdowns have been delivering food door to door, uh, so people are not relying on on going to work for incomes and shutting down even even a lot of industries that we deem here essential services. But of course, if the if the if the question is going to work, feeding your kids, paying rent versus taking the health measures seriously, which it is for a lot of people in North America, then of course, people are going to be torn. And it, it gives a real material basis for a lot of these conspiracy theories and this ultra right ideology that's really popping up and that Trump has taken advantage of and others like him. So unfortunately, I don't think a, a lot of this, uh, including the ultra right, the growth in the ultra right is going to end overnight. But at the same time, um, the resistance that we've seen in, in terms of the the, the George Floyd uh, protests are here closer to home uh, with Regis Korchinski Paquette around the same time. Massive mobilizations. Right, there was one weekend I remember seeing you know thousands of people in the street in you know London, Ontario, Guelph, Ontario, like smaller centers all over Ontario. So it wasn't just you know we can look back and look what happened in the states, but it was our province too where there is a a massive problem with uh, racist policing right across the board. Uh, what else? Of course, Wet'suwet'en, pre-pandemic, but it did happen less than a year ago. Uh, all the uh, spontaneous rallies right across the country and, and direct actions there, that was also very inspiring. And some of that uh, stayed in place and gave another, um, uh, uh, I guess, boost to the solidarity movement around 1492 Lambeck Lane. 
um, which is a, a, a land reclamation close to Six Nations, second one in the last 20 years because the federal government is refusing to deal with um, recognizing the treaty rights, the held them in track treaty rights and um, the uh, the land claims uh, of the Six Nations uh, and the Haudenosaunee people there. So, you know, all in all, not a good year, but there's some glimmers of hope and uh, the answer is always organizing and struggle. And uh, there's definitely the seeds of that emerging uh, amid the, the crisis of 2020. So Alex, I'm going to go to you next, um, uh, talking about primarily COVID first round um, uh, and what we should have, could have done better and what we should be doing and all of that. Um, I'm, I'm just going to throw into the mix um, something that I just tweeted out uh, yesterday or today, um, that of course, if you have $400, you can get um, immediate uh, antibody and um uh, and testing, no weights, no symptoms necessary, just go do it. Uh, and you'll get a little, you know, so, so private healthcare is very much creeping into this province has been here for a while, but now it's showing it's, uh, it's, you know, that it's there. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we look forward to vaccines, the same thing may very well happen, will probably happen that that those who have $400 in their pocket can get a vaccine. I, I know, Ben, you're, I, I already heard from Americans from Twitter who said, I wish we could, you know, <laughs> wish we had your system. But, you know, just because it's worse uh, doesn't mean we can't be better. Um, so, Alex, what about COVID? Well, yeah, that example of buying yourself to the front of the line, the wealth before health approach is, has shown it's the generalized capitalist approach to the pandemic. And capitalism has totally failed in this pandemic and has killed millions of people because of it. Millions of totally needless deaths are happening, have happened, are happening, will happen because of the failure of the capitalist system to solve the pandemic. Because you know, Margaret Thatcher says there's no such thing as society. Well, the virus understands there's a society and is exploiting capitalist society to its utmost. And yes, and, and they, they've always put the profit before working class people and the health of working class people. That They did that in the first wave. They've done that in the second wave. One very explicit example is long-term care. Long-term care, which is the overwhelming majority of Canadian deaths are in long-term care. But the death rate in for profit care is what? It's something like twice, two, three, four, five times the non-profit and government-run care. And they're still, then they're getting millions of dollars. I think that a new report said that they got $138 million subsidy in long-term care, $138 million gift from the government. And while uh, hundreds or even thousands of people are dying, uh, they gave out $170 million in payouts, in dividends to their shareholders. Utterly criminal. All these people should be locked up, right? And that's just the failure of the capitalist system. A socialist system could entirely rationally deal with this entirely rationally deal with this. You shut down non-essential production, genuinely essential production, you give those workers double danger pay, and you put production under workers' control so that the workers themselves can decide what is and is not essential, right? 
a, a social society could put health before wealth, production for need, not for profit. That that's uh, what's in front of us. You, you also seen um, amazingly, you've seen this K-shaped recovery, right? That the billionaires are doing fantastically. There's an economic crisis. There's mass unemployment, but the billionaires are doing fantastically. Top 44 billionaires in Canada uh, increased their wealth by $53 billion. That's a 28% growth this year. 28% growth, $53 billion. While the poor, uh, working class people are facing unemployment, poverty, just surviving. There's now an evictions crisis, both in Canada and the USA. And, and this is going to have incredibly radic incredible radicalizing uh, consequences, that the system is failing all around us and people are starting to realize. Um, so speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show to, um, to Drew Garvey, who is the president of the Communist Party uh, in Ontario, and you just heard Alex Grant, editor of Fight Back and Men Nolan, a doctoral student political theory from UMass. Um, ben, you've been working and studying in the States um, it, where things are worse than here <laughs> by any metric, quite frankly. And we are we are looking at, you know, some horrific photos. I mean, in Texas of, you know, just lineups and lineups of cars to get food, for example. Um, people dying by the droves, not, you know, to Alex and Drew's point, it's not just everybody's dying. Um, you know, the billionaires are getting richer, you know, Betsos is doing fine. Um, but mostly, you know, African-American people of color, working class people are dying. Um, so again, you know, um, that's that's the scene. How much is capitalist responsible for? And and you know, when when you're there, what what are you seeing in terms of you know possible hope um, for a better organization that might have prevented this? That's well, a difficult question. I mean, it's a wild, it's wildly uneven the way that it's which you've touched on by by mentioning that again, like you know, billionaires are coming out great. I, I would disagree with Alex about locking them up as an abolitionist flirting with Maoism. I'd say maybe we could send them to a re-education camp. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been wild. The governmental administrations at all levels have really seized on this crisis to do many of the things that they've wanted to do since the start. You know, austerity has been a reality, especially at the university, which I think is basically going to not exist anymore as anything but a source of uh, subsidized research for weapons and pharmaceutical companies. We really genuinely have only each other to rely on. And so something that's been quite beautiful is seeing all of the sort of mutual aid networks that have popped up and the degree to which people have risen to the occasion, even despite all of their own burdens to be there for each other, recognizing that there's literally nothing that's coming to the rescue, except maybe this vaccine someday. Regarding socialist responses to this, I think that there's a bunch of really important examples internationally that we can look to. To cite one, I'd point to the Indian state of Kerala, which has been under communist administration for the last half century or so and has the combination of being both quite poor and being very internationally connected. A big chunk of the state's income comes in the form of remittances from especially nurses that they've sent out all over the world. But their response to COVID has been absolutely outstanding with very low fatality rates, very quick responses and contact tracing. They've managed to really suppress the spread of the virus in a way that I don't think any of the other states have. We can also, again, look at Vietnam, a country of 110 million people, which 
has almost effectively, uh, it's not even that they eradicated the virus, it just never sort of became a thing there particularly because they took it very seriously from the earliest onset. But let me just jump in here and just push y'all a little bit on this. Uh, you could also point to some capitalist countries, too, that have done a pretty good job. Um, Australia, you know, Taiwan, Taiwan, an ultimate capitalist country, um, has virtually not had many cases. Australia shutting its border, doing kind of New Zealand zero cases now, doing all the do things, even under capitalism. Um, so uh, and, and I'm going to open this up. I mean, jump in. Um, so. So yes, understandably, if there is control, government control, um, and workers control, yeah, got it. But, but you know, um, what about? I, I throw this into the mix. What about you know? Uh, and and we, we won't talk about Sweden, social democracy. Yes, yeah, so I was just about high, to bring that one, one of up. the highest yeah. rates in the world <laughs> per capita. You know, bad mistake there. Um, but uh, but what about social democracy? I mean, this is if, if we want to sort of put the NDP in our heads for a minute, the New Democratic Party here in Canada, or in the states, the Squad, Bernie, blah blah, the left of the Democratic Party, I guess. Um, uh, what you know? What about the set, the social democratic alternative, which is still capitalist? Well, I, I don't think BC. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, BC hasn't done any better than Ontario, uh, really. So, in, in terms of the NDP, I, I don't. I don't think there's uh, much to uh, uh, wave the flag about. Uh, now, yes, uh, there have been countries. It is about testing, tracing, and being prepared to lock down. Right, testing, tracing, lockdown, and and actually, from a capitalist perspective, that even makes sense. It's quite clear to show that you let you let the virus run wild, that destroys the economy. Whereas if you take it very seriously very early, then you, it's easier to track it with testing and tracing, and you can open up the capitalist economy even a little bit. So this just goes to show the short-sightedness and the stupidity of the main capitalist nations. But I don't think the record of social democracy is great, and especially Sweden. The, you know, the, 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 the poster child for social democracy is supposed, supposedly Sweden, and they just had a laissez-faire attitude. And, and now that I think they have officially given up on it as an utter crisis, as it cannot be maintained. But I don't think, you know, I, I guess New Zealand and Australia have done okay but I can't really think about any other social democratic country has really done very well. So, uh, so Drew, we talk, we're talking about now into the social, de you know, what about social democracy as an alternative? The NDP in Canada, I'll get to Ben after about the, the squad and the left of the Democratic Party or, or Democratic Socialists of America, um, although they're not really on the radar the way that N NDP is here in Canada. So let's talk about the NDP, Drew. Yeah, I, I think, um, I, I mean, BC has done definitely quantitatively better than Ontario or, and I think, you know, if, if Rachel Notley was still in power in Alberta, she probably would have taken things more seriously or more seriously more early on than Jason Kenney. So that's a really low bar. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's what's coming next. I, I think well, that that's quantitative difference is different than a qualitative difference. And I think we do see the qualitative differences in, in countries where um, that don't have, you know, health systems that have been massively privatized over the last uh, 40, uh, 40 years. And that includes provinces where the NDP is in government now. So you have to look at the kind of systems too. Um, but I do think, 
you know, even among capitalist countries, there is a difference between, you know, the Bolsonaro's and the Trump's of the world. And, um, and so, yeah, we have to take that into account a little bit, but that in terms of the, uh, the overall strategy, uh, a lot of these countries have been the same. Even our own government was kind of flirting with the, um, uh, what do you call it? The herd, the herd immunity, uh, ideas at the beginning. I don't know if you remember, but Patty, Patty Haidu at the beginning, like that first week in March was saying stuff like, well, this will end when we get 70% of people infected and stuff like that. So they were all having the same conversations all around the world. It's just some governments stuck to, to that line a little longer. Um, but certainly, I guess we're going to see the difference between the, the Democrats and the Republicans in the States um, soon enough. Um, but it, when you have like a clear right-wing, uh, right-wing uh, ultra-right president like Trump or Bolsonaro or Modi in India, um, those are, you know, those are totally beholden to business interests. A lot of them will play down the the uh, pandemic, which is uh, for ideological reasons, which will create, uh, uh, you know, symbolically or, um, you know, like the stuff Biden says does matter in terms of personal leadership and wearing a mask on TV that matters. But in terms of the actual systemic structure of being able to mobilize health resources economic resources. If you look at the Canadian government's uh, response, even the Trudeau government, um, you know, these have all been neoliberal solutions. Dump a bunch of wage subsidy money into the biggest corporations and hope it trickles down. Give everybody a $2,000 check for a little bit. Oh, we can't afford that. So we'll we'll dial it back a little bit. Um, but, but God forbid, we actually exp- have universal programs that are put in place, like, you know, really expanding EI to cover everybody. So it's been all these kind of half measures and temporary measures to try and patch together a framework. Um, whereas in a, in a society that doesn't have these, all these holes punched in it by neoliberalism and fundamentally um, uh, what we need is socialism that, that has you know, real public ownership and democratic control over sections of the economy that um, are really necessary to mobilize those resources, um, you know, on a dime and, and move them into the places where we, we need, so, so, so I, ju- I just going to jump in there, for, Drew. So, so support the NDP, work with the NDP, NDP, forget about it. Where are you at in that spectrum? Uh, well, I'll, I'll keep my answer brief since I went on for so long. But uh, the work with the NDP, work with NDP members, uh, no, but we don't support the NDP because ultimately um, we're, they're a very untrustworthy partner in terms of transitioning to socialism. Okay. And I'm going to go to you, Ben, um, because, you know, talking from uh, from the American vantage point here, even though I know you're a Canadian, uh, you've been down there. Um, so the squad, Bernie, any hope for the Democratic Party? I mean, it's a difficult question. I, I think that there's a degree to which the squad members are realizing that there's very little to be gained from compromising with the current Democratic Party leadership. Whether they can gain enough traction to actually take over the party, I think that's a pretty big stretch. I guess it's nice to have people with platforms talking about things like the ways that universal health care could have mitigated and could go on mitigating this crisis. It's difficult to overstate how serious this is going to be long term for Americans with a for-profit insurance industry where being post-COVID is probably going to result in you owing thousands and thousands of dollars every single year. You know, at the end of the day, I'd much rather have Bernie in the squad as a sort of sparring partner. I, I don't particularly think there's much hope in their theory of change, but I don't see the profit in um, completely writing them off as voices for the left. 
Biden is extraordinarily depressing, though. I mean, effectively, his plan is Trump's plan, except that he says that he believes in the virus. <laughs> and the ma- and the masks like like uh, you know honestly like uh, it's not a mystery that paying people to stay home for a while is is a hugely effective mitigation strategy and that's so far beyond the pale of what he's even willing to talk about. I mean, I, I would say that the most immediate experience that I've had, the most immediate way that I've experienced this crisis is it's been seized on as a real opportunity to discipline labor. And actually, in fact, in the spring, they're looking to actually compel a substantial number of the faculty and graduate students into in-person teaching for no reason. Mostly it's because they want to have the revenue from students coming and living in the residences. And, you know, the university is on the brink of collapse financially because it's been effectively privatized over the last 30 plus years. It's interesting, actually, because Massachusetts is a state in which it's illegal to strike as a public sector worker. This was tested in Michigan, where that's similarly the case in the graduate workers struck. I've been kind of trying to make the argument, again, somewhat facetiously, that since only about a quarter of our operating budget comes from government appropriations or grants, we're only one quarter a public sector (laughs) university. So maybe about three out of every four of us could strike at a time. (laughs) We'll see if that gains any track. I want to look at solutions now from our leftist, leftist, leftist panel today. Um, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show. I'm your host, Sherry DeNovo, and we have on the show uh, Ben Nolan. You just heard him, a doctoral uh, student in political theory at the University of Massachusetts, a Du Bois fellow. Uh, you've heard from Alex Grant, um, a regular panelist here, uh, the editor of Fight Back, Andrew Garvey, uh, the Ontario Provincial Communist Party leader. So looking ahead, uh, as organizers all, Drew, um, what are you looking at for 2021? How, I mean, first of all, um, for somebody who's been waiting for the revolution for a long time, (laughs) what are we looking at for 2021? Um, And how do we get there faster? Well, uh, I mean, it would be nice to say that the revolution is happening in 2021, but so far I don't don't see the signs of that, unfortunately. Um, But, um, you know, you never know. Things are changing pretty quickly and a lot of people are getting... Uh, very desperate, very quickly. This this second lockdown, it's it's unclear how it's going to affect people, at least for me right now. Um, and a lot of people are, you know, this mass eviction blitz, blitz that's taking place in Toronto and across Ontario right now. Um, we'll see what kind of layoffs come from this. The fact that um, we might be going into a federal election in the in the early part of this year, um, and who knows what the federal government's going to do in terms of different supports for people. Like all that's set to expire in March again in terms of the CRB and BEI expansions and stuff like that. So it's a very uncertain future for people's living standards and, and working conditions. Um, it's it's, it's uh, scary and unpredictable. And even politically, if we're going into an election, it's un- unpredictable, although the liberals are way up in, a, in the polls. Um, so just on the superficial political level, it's it's unclear. But the main thing is that we need to to get in there and and uh, interject with with people's demands instead of waiting for um, even the NDP to save us. Um, so, for example, the Canadian Labour Congress leadership, unfortunately, has um, taken attack to release public statements with the Chamber of Commerce throughout this pandemic and. Um, and then endorsed Bill Morneau for the um, OECD leadership, um, trying to cozy up to the Liberals. Well, some of some a lot of affiliates have spoken out against that, so there is some fight there. But um, you know, in terms of the uh, 
the public sector workers, especially during the pandemic, there were some real um, uh, fight in them early on in the pandemic, a lot of um, kind of wildcat actions and, and demanding PPE. So we've seen that there is, there's, you know, there's the ability to, to mobilize. We've talked about, just to interject, we've talked about um, a general strike on the show before. No signs of that. I can't imagine a better time for one. Personally, like we're, you know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, you look at what teachers are walking into every day when the schools were open. You look at other public sector workers who are putting their lives on the line uh, every day. Um, I just heard from paramedics who apparently were last on the list. They've just been added for those who get vaccinated first. I mean, this is abusive. Um, so, so, uh, so when a when when they could paralyze the system and actually get some results, even out of our conservative government, why haven't they? I mean, what what do you what's your takeaway from that? Well, I think it's a it's a a problem with leadership over the years, um, and I, I you know the 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 unions are have just been getting pounded. I mean, social democracy really took over the labor movement in Canada in the the 50s and 60s when a lot of the anti when the communists and, and the left were were kind of purged and they were used to making deals with the boss and then suddenly the boss was just saying no the way the old way we did business making deals is no good you're going to have to take major concessions so they don't know what to do a lot of the good old boys in the unions so there needs to be um a real fight from the from the grassroots up and we need to elect leaders that will what will actually lead but there is some hope here. I mean, if you look at the Alberta Federation of Labor, there were organized wildcat strikes this fall um, in opposition to the Kenny government. The Kenny government gave them no choice because of the full frontal attack he was giving public sector workers in that province. But it does show that there is hope in 2021, uh, 2020, that, that that we can have general strikes. And um, uh, But we need to, it's not enough just to de- declare them from the sidelines. We really do need to um, be inside the labor movement, have a a real left presence in there, and to to really um, organize. Okay, thank you, uh, Alex. Twenty twenty one. What what should we be doing to uh, to bring the revolution a little bit closer? Well, we have seen fantastic uh, movements in twenty twenty. We sh- yeah, we should not forget the Wet'suwet'en and the Lambak Lane and the broader Indigenous rights movement. And we definitely should not forget the opposition to police violence and racism and for racial equality, the Black Lives Matter movement. Those movements are not dead by any means. Uh, they, uh, and, and they will come back. And you, and you will see new movements. You'll see new movements, yes, in terms of evictions and homelessness, uh, and yes, you could see movements of frontline workers who are facing the brunt of the pandemic, and the brunt of the profiteering. You know, is it an accident that while Jeff Bezos is making billions and billions and billions, thousands and thousands of Amazon workers are getting infected in warehouses in the US and in Canada and in the region of Peel? You know, that's, uh, there's, I think there's two or three uh, warehouses there that are major centers of infection. So... Uh, and I wrote an article in Marxist.ca just recently about how the labor movement should lead the fight for workplace testing. And if there is found to be significant infection in any of those workplaces, they should be fully shut down and uh, and cleaned and all of the necessary procedures so that there can only be safe production. Uh, but I think the real big explosion point is the question of who pays. Right. They've given out billions and billions of dollars to the corporations. 
They've also uh, got the, um, uh, the the waves. Uh, so they've got the um, the CERB, the CRB, giving out to sort of people just trying to survive. And this, on a capitalist basis, is not sustainable. They cannot continue to run those deficits inevitably. And, and eventually, the decision will have to be made, who is paying? Is it going to be the rich, the capitalist pay, or is it going to be working class people? We know with these right-wing governments, they're going to make working class people pay. And there's going to be massive cuts, massive cuts to social services, massive cuts to wages and conditions and benefits, massive cuts. And that is actually the historically the driving force of almost every major revolution. The English Revolution, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, all of them, who pays? Who pays uh, for the crisis? And so that is the uh, the locomotive that is coming towards us of, uh, and, and that will have huge radicalizing consequences. So Ben, um, you get the last word on this. Um, what gives you hope um, that uh, we're gonna change the system coming up? And we haven't even touched much on the, on the climate crisis, which of course is the drumbeat in the back of all of this, um, which is existential in nature. So maybe, you know, but again, um, so Ben, 2021. On the climate crisis, I think that we saw pretty decisively disproven the idea that this can be solved as a function of personal responsibility with all of us for going flying and, you know, a lot of our old consumption habits for the year. I would point to sort of three additional vectors of hope beyond the ones that have already been mentioned. One is currently unfolding in India is, is one of the biggest labor movements in history. The farmers have blockaded Delhi. The labor force in rapidly neoliberalizing India is going to be, I think, a major site of class struggle, probably for the 21st century. That's definitely worth watching. And, and there's a lot that's exciting about it. The other is, of course, what's been happening in Latin America with the pushback against the fascist coup in Bolivia and the uh, huge victory against the neoliberal constitution in Chile. Again, those aren't consolidated victories and there's gonna there's a lot to fight for still there to make sure that the momentum keeps moving but those are tremendously hopeful 2020 developments and the third is interestingly amazon has done a tremendous job at consolidating the means of production and distribution and suddenly we're seeing internationally connected labor mobilization movements happening across various Amazon distribution and uh, production sites. Interestingly, Alabama, there's a big Amazon unionization drive. And honestly, if, if Amazon can be internationally socialized, like that's my big utopian vision. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad one. Thank you for that. I, I mean, it's true. The more that capitalism becomes consolidated, the more hope there is that <laughs> so can the resistance to it. Um, okay, I want to thank my guests, uh, Drew Garvey, um, uh, the Ontario Provincial Communist Party leader. I want to thank uh, Ben Nolan, a doctoral student, political theory from the University of Massachusetts, Du Bois Fellow, and Alex Grant, uh, editor of Fight Back, for being on the show. Looking ahead to a leftist, leftist, leftist 2021. Have a very happy new year and, uh, and keep those calls and comments coming. Always love them. So take care, everybody, uh, and thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Sherry. You know. See you, Sherry. Thanks so much, Sherry. Yeah.